Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I don't imagine any US president was ever closer to your great land, said President Donald Trump in an interview with a British newspaper in 2019. I think I'm really loved in the UK. They like me over there. That's what they wanted. That's what they need. As is frequently the case when Donald Trump opens his mouth, the facts tell a different story. YouGov polling shows 78% of the British public dislike Donald Trump, and many of them vehemently so. You'd suspect that figure might be even higher inside Whitehall, where politicians and civil servants tend to value things like stability, consistency and sanity. How smart is Kim Jong-un? Top of the line. I'm a very stable genius. Our leader is a stupid person. But the only poll that matters, as the old saying goes, is the one on election day. And the next US presidential election, now less than a year away, is shaping up to be an awful lot closer than 78% of Brits, and probably most of Whitehall, might hope. Because despite all the chaos of Donald Trump's four-year presidency, Despite the multiple court cases he's now facing covering a litany of criminal charges, and despite an attempted violent coup by his supporters on January the 6th, 2021, to overturn his last election defeat, Donald Trump thinks he's coming back. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. So much of what happened under the last Trump presidency feels like a fever dream now. You've maybe blocked parts of it out yourself if you're of a certain liberal, metropolitan mindset. But if you're still hiding under a rock, half asleep, well, I'm sorry to do this to you. But the latest polls are clear. It's time to wake up. Trump's essentially recreating the path that he had in 2016 to the presidency. If the election were held tomorrow, we've got Trump winning the Electoral College. 292 votes to Biden's 246. 270 is that magic number that a person needs to win if they're going to win the presidency. Poll after poll of battleground states shows the prospect of a second Trump presidency is growing. And a year out from the American election, we here in Westminster and others around the world need to start thinking about it. Because while there was an awful lot else going on over here from the end of 2016 through to the end of 2020, two general elections, a tortuous Brexit process and the first half of a global pandemic, you'll hardly need reminding that the presence of Donald Trump in the White House 
remained one of the central themes of that whole chaotic era. And chaos it was. That Brexit is a very tough situation. I did give her a suggestion, I wouldn't say advice, and I think she found it maybe too brutal. Begin immediate construction of a border wall. And then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute. And is there a way we can do something like that by injection? Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please. I think Nigel's someplace in this audience. Where's Nigel? So this week on the podcast, we'll be speaking to Kim Darrock, who was Britain's ambassador to the US during the Trump presidency. You have to take this seriously. This is a real possibility. You have to think about what it means. We'll hear from Katie Perrier, Theresa May's Downing Street comms chief through 2016 and 17. There were lots of behind the scenes conversations, phone calls where Theresa May didn't get a word in edgeways. We'll hear from Politico's own Eugene Daniels, co-author of our Washington playbook, on what a second Trump presidency might mean for Western institutions like NATO. If Donald Trump's the president, America probably will not be very into NATO anymore. And we'll hear from the US polling and data expert Joe Bedell on why, yes, really, this is looking more and more likely to happen. So we've got Trump winning the Electoral College by over 22 points more than he needs. Biden would win the popular vote, but lose the Electoral College, and Trump would win. And we will make America great again. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're discussing the possible return of President Donald Trump to the White House, and whether Westminster is even remotely ready for whatever comes next. If we're going to start this podcast anywhere, we'd better start it here. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. The events of January the 6th, 2021, don't really need retelling. A crowd of 10,000 or so Donald Trump supporters gather in Washington to protest what they falsely believe to be the theft of the US election. The crowd is addressed by Donald Trump's son, by Donald Trump's personal lawyer, by Donald Trump himself. We will stop the steal. The president speaks for over an hour, urging the crowd to fight like hell for their country. Several thousand of them march to the Capitol, where lawmakers are about to make Joe Biden the president. Things turn violent. Some force their way inside. Police are overwhelmed. They've got to gain control. They've got to gain control quickly or it's going to get worse. Five people are killed in the violent clashes and the death count will rise even higher in the days and weeks ahead. We're witnessing an attempt at a forceful overthrow of the U.S. government. Members of Congress are lucky to escape with their lives. America's democracy also escapes, largely unscathed. The US has never really witnessed a day like it. More than a thousand people have since been charged with federal crimes. Among them, Donald Trump himself. A state judge has already ruled that the former president, quote, engaged in insurrection. But two years and 10 months after that attempted uprising, Donald Trump is the bookie's favorite to be voted back in as US president next year. And at this point in time, 
the data backs it up. So we just got out of the field with a over 15,000 person national survey of the 2024 presidential election. This is Joe Bedell, associate director at the political polling firm Stack Data Strategy. And what our data has found is in a head-to-head between Trump and Biden, if the election were held tomorrow, we've got Trump winning the Electoral College, 292 votes to Biden's 246. 270 is that magic number that a person needs to win if they're going to win the presidency. So we've got Trump winning the Electoral College by over 22 points more than he needs. We also have Trump losing the popular vote. Uh, so Biden would win the popular vote, but lose the Electoral College and Trump would win. Which is more or less exactly what happened in 2016 when Trump lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, but still ended up as president. Correct. Yes. Very similar to 2016 in a couple ways, not only just with the numbers in terms of Trump losing the popular vote and winning the Electoral College. Trump's also essentially recreating the path that he had in 2016 to the presidency. So in, in 2016, he won historically blue states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Uh, and then in, in 2020, Biden was able to flip Wisconsin and Pennsylvania back to the Democrats and also win states like Arizona and Georgia. Our model is showing that Trump is going to have to rebuild that 2016 pathway. Right. And what's crucial about your poll is that this is not just a sort of headline national poll. You've modeled it state by state to get to that crucial electoral college answer that actually tells us who's going to be president. Correct. We've actually even modeled it down county by county. So I'd encourage everyone to take a look at a dashboard on our website uh, where you can interrogate the data to your heart's desire on on a county level and, and also a state level. Just give us a sense of how close a run thing it was in the survey that you did, in the models you run, uh, uh, you know, to Trump run away with it? Or are we talking about a fractional victory? So those four states I mentioned that, that Trump is flipping back, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona, these are very tight margins uh, within all of those states. And two of the states that we have Biden holding on to in the moment are Michigan and Nevada. But both of those states, Michigan is under a point and uh, Nevada is under a point and a half. So kind of across the key battleground states, it's, it's very tight with those numbers. A few hundred thousand votes across some of these states can swing it to uh, Biden or Trump. Essentially, what's causing this change and helping Trump in these states is that Biden is kind of losing support with the key demographic groups uh, that, that he won in 2020. He's losing ground with African-American voters, with Hispanic voters, uh, with young voters, with independents. This is where, where Biden's problem is. These voters that are, are switching to Trump, it, it kind of goes along with the whole realignment narrative that we've been seeing in American politics these past few cycles. Stack data use a technique called multi-level regression and post-stratification polling, or MRP. Essentially, it means undertaking a very large survey and then using demographic voting trends to transpose the results onto different parts of the country. MRP polling has been popular in the UK for a few years now. It's just starting to take off in the US. So actually, uh, Stack ran, I believe, the first MRP, at least for in a party context, last cycle by predicting the House of Representatives for the National Republican Congressional Committee. And that MRP spat out basically the day of the election. It was one seat off what Republicans total ended up being. So it was running very counter to, I think, a lot of the red wave narrative that was evolving at the time. Right. So you must be pretty confident in your model now. 
Very confident, very excited, yes. Wow, excited is one word for it. Um, what would you say to someone in the UK who says, no way, this guy's like, look at everything that's happened since 2021. There's absolutely no way this guy's coming back. I don't believe a word of it. I think uh, one takeaway from the past few cycles of American politics is to expect the unexpected and that clearly anything can happen. You can have an election in 2020 that people think clearly it shows the country's going one way. And now nearly four years later, we're seeing a shift in the opposite direction. Now, the question I am crying out to ask at this point is, how? How is Donald Trump, who's facing almost 100 criminal charges over various different lawsuits, one of them related to a violent insurrection, how is he gaining in popularity since he left office? I mean, American politics is so insane now that really anything could happen. This is my colleague Eugene Daniels, co-author of Politico's Washington Playbook over in D.C. I think people who feel like no one will vote for Donald Trump again, that it, it, he wouldn't win the primary, he wouldn't win the general election, you know, those people are fooling themselves. We live in a country where he has a lot of support. And in the primary right now, he's still beating everyone by a lot, right? Everyone in Washington, D.C. and around this country are operating under the idea that it's going to be Donald Trump. And a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden does not mean the end result is going to be the same as it was in 2020, right? Joe Biden has um, a lot of vulnerabilities this time around that he didn't have going into it. The American people are very anxious and angry overall with a lot of the things going on. So anyone who would be president right now would get some of that agita that he's receiving. So a Donald Trump presidency is not out of the realm of possibility at all. Let's just unpack the reasoning behind this a little bit, because the data guy we had on was very good with the hard numbers. He said, look, in yeah. you know, Pennsylvania, we think this is happening. In Wisconsin, yeah, we yeah. think this is happening. And as a Brit, you're just listening to it going, but wait a minute, you know, Donald Trump is facing multiple criminal charges. We saw this sort of <laughs> semi-uprising less than three years ago when they yeah, threw him yeah. out of office last time. How can it be that someone in that position has a very realistic chance of winning the presidency again? So after January 6th, there was a real time period where Republicans were ready to move on from Donald Trump, that it was obvious at that time that they didn't want to be tied to him anymore, that he had gone too far for a lot of the people, even some of the folks who were his allies for years and his sycophants. But what ended up happening is... Kevin McCarthy, the former Speaker of the House, goes to Mar-a-Lago and you continue to see other Republicans do that and they bring him back into the fold. And so what that tells Republican voters is that, oh, we're, oh it's fine to, to, to like this guy again. It, we're, all, we're all OK. And also that media ecosystem spent a lot of time whitewashing the things that happened on January 6th. We all watched it and saw exactly what happened, how terrible it was. But all the whitewashing of that, it was just, you know, tourism is something that you hear a lot from Fox News, that um, we in the media were overblowing it, that, you know, people were taking their, their country back, all of these lies that were told to folks. And so that creates this perfect storm where <laughs> Donald Trump is, you know, it, it's not difficult for him to come back into the fore and more importantly, at the, at, at the top of the Republican Party. And then on him having all of these indictments, more than 90 different charges, he went up in the polls every time that he was indicted, which is like, was wild for us to watch. He was, he went up in the polls. He got more support. You saw more Republicans 
voters and leaders coming around him and putting their arms around him. And that's because they feel sorry for him or they think everyone's out against him and they want to stick up for him? Donald Trump, since 2015, has has been leaning into grievance politics, right? The, the bad guys, the elites, the media, the deep state, um, they are coming after me because they want you. I'm the only person that stands in between you and total destruction. That is something he's been saying for a long time. When you've been saying that for a long time, it's been repeated by other Republicans. Of course, voters are going to believe that, right? Of course, they are going to accept that when he's indicted, oh, that's the deep state again. And then they go closer to their guy. If I was just to fast forward you 12 months, do we have any idea what a second Trump presidency would actually look like? Does he talk about policy? Do we do we know what we should be braced for over here? Yeah, I mean, I think that you guys should be braced for a lot of chaos. I think especially for folks on the international scene, he is not someone, as we well know, that's interested in multilateral partnerships, right? He has talked about pulling out of the United Nations. Any kind of agreement between more than one country, he is likely to pull out of. NATO? NATO, all of those different kinds. We're, we're pretty of, into of, NATO of, over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when, and, and if, if Donald Trump's the president, America probably will not be very into NATO anymore. And I think what people should really understand about another Donald Trump presidency is the kind of, you know, Republicans that we think about as, as moderate Republicans, people who would have worked for really any Republican White House, those people aren't going to be there. It's going to be sycophants. It's going to be people who maybe don't have a lot of experience other than just loving Donald Trump and his policies. And you'll have less of the resisting figures from within, the less of the restraining forces on, on the president that we saw last time. Yeah, there might be no resistance in, internally, right? I think the lessons he learned was oh, I need people that fight for me and do what I say. I need people who will help me overturn an, an election. And I need those people in the White House, in the Justice Department, all of my secretaries in my cabinet, in up and down the federal government. So those guardrails won't be there anymore. It will be whatever Donald Trump wants at any time. And in terms of his commitment to the war in Ukraine not committed at all no commitment to the no commitment to the war in ukraine and really it's not clear how he would even handle what's happening in the middle east right now right we we, we he praised hamas um and, and hezbollah at one point he called them smart and so it's unclear how he would operate in any of these conflicts that we're all seeing i mean climate change being another international issue that we are all hoping that we figure out at some point that he is unlikely to really engage in so the the world stage will look very different with another Donald Trump presidency. Well, this is jolly, isn't it? Coming up after the break, is Westminster ready for this? Be worried about it. Start to think about how you would mitigate some of the things that he would try to do, what you would do about NATO, how you might try to persuade him to stay in. It's a one-way conversation with Trump. He doesn't listen. He doesn't care. He's just interested in Donald Trump. And, you know, you're his audience for half an hour. And that's how he views you. Stay with us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. In October 2016, I got the best assignment of my life. I was political editor at the Daily Mirror, a tabloid newspaper which sold a lot of copies here in Britain but had no political correspondent over in Washington. And so for the final two weeks of the 2016 US election campaign, I was dispatched to America. This has to be our mission together. Don't worry about Hillary Clinton, I was told. You follow Trump. The story is Trump. I'm asking for your vote. Sounds cynical, but they were right. So I flew to JFK. I hired a car and I spent a whole week driving around the Rust Belt, northwest of New York City. I went to rural Ohio, to small town Pennsylvania. I attended a Trump rally in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So the first thing we should do, let's get rid of Hillary, okay? That's... Pretty much everyone I met was voting Trump. And the thing that was surprising to a naive young journalist from the UK was that these Trump supporters were not the sort of baying mob we'd been led to believe. They were just ordinary people, ordinary American families. He's a businessman, was a thing I heard a lot. He's fighting for our jobs. He's going to shake up Washington. And also, over and over again, that anything, anyone, would be better than Hillary Clinton. It was instantly obvious that Trump had a much better chance of winning than was maybe appreciated over here in the UK. My final dispatch on the eve of the election charted the path that Trump might yet take to victory through a series of Rust Belt states, if his voters turned out in force. And so it came to pass. Donald Trump has won the state of Florida, one of his must-win states right there. Trump wins Wisconsin. Huge news, uh, actually. The AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania. That is uh, the race, frankly. Uh, there is no path forward for Hillary Clinton. I just remember the results coming in. I was at one of those election party, I think the Washington Post party. This is Kim Darrick, who was Britain's ambassador to Washington between 2016 and 2019. 90% of Washington is Democrats, maybe more than 90%. You could just sense there was a sort of growing fear in the room. People were not in the least a bit sort of celebrating or even enjoying the party. 
They were gathered in silent huddles, just watching the results come in and looking really worried. As Britain's man in DC, the ambassador is essentially the nation's first point of contact for an incoming president and their team. And it's the ambassador's job to explain the likely ramifications of this new regime to those watching from afar in Whitehall. It was a real step into the unknown because Trump had said some fairly extraordinary things on the campaign trail. And he had a team of virtual unknowns around him. And some of them were not merely unknown, but seemed, how shall I put it, quite eccentric, quite non-mainstream in their views. But a lot of Republicans were saying, you watch. When he, if he wins, he will pivot and he'll become like other Republican presidents. And he'll be a big supporter of the NATO alliance and of the relationship with the UK. And it'll all be great. An ambassador has to work swiftly after an election to ingratiate themselves with the new White House regime. In 2024, this will be on Karen Pierce, the flamboyant British diplomat who's held the brief for the past few years. But back in 2016, it was Kim Darrick, and he moved fast. I managed to get an invitation up to Trump Tower in New York for a couple of two or three weeks after the election result to meet. Kushner and Bannon and Steve Miller. And then um, I managed to get an invitation for Boris Johnson, who was then for our section, come out and meet the three of them about two or three weeks before the inauguration. And I'd been talking to Bannon and others about whether we could get Theresa May in quickly to be one of the first visitors in to see him. And somehow we managed to nail the first visit about a week after he had come in. That stage, I'd met him briefly, but at an event with a number of other ambassadors there. So I didn't have much more than five or six minutes to talk to him. I couldn't get a big insight on what he would think and what he would say. So we had to tell the Prime Minister that she was really taking a step into the unknown. I was on Theresa May's plane for that first trip over to Washington to meet the newly inaugurated Trump in January 2017. We actually covered this whole trip in the second ever episode of this podcast, way back in season one, when we explored what it's like for British Prime Ministers to meet a new American president. Check it out when you've got a minute. Because on the podcast that day, we had Katie Perrier, who was also on that same trip to the White House in her role as Theresa May's Director of Comms. Here she is, recalling election night in 2016. Lots of people were going to come off the plane and head off to the kind of iconic US embassy party that happens every election. I decided that as the results were coming in, I had no longer any interest in the party. And I went to my hotel room and prepared for the following morning. And I was back in the office by 6am. Um, and Theresa May walked in as I was blow drying my hair to say to me, we need a statement on Trump. We need to start preparing. I called Katie up again this week to ask her if, looking back now, anyone in Westminster was really ready for Trump's presidency the first time round. I mean, it seems mad at the time to even admit this, but there wasn't a lot of prep that went into it, of course, because we genuinely thought that Clinton might steal it. We knew there were some problems, but we actually thought she'd be fine. And so my planning was all about how, you know, I was going to have Angela Merkel, Theresa May, Hillary Clinton all lined up. And my video would be, you know, who runs the world? Girls. And it's going to be, you know, this incredible moment uh, for female 
um, advancement in politics. Uh, and it all came crash, crashing down because not just the fact that that didn't happen, uh, but we had a man that we were dealing with who didn't really have any time for women full stop, let alone uh, female leaders. And so we had to really change the way that we were going to do business. And that took some um, getting used to inside number 10. Um, it's like one of these people you try and impress. You don't really know how to do it. So you tried lots of different ways. Uh, some people wanted to, you know, double the defence budget just to impress him. Um, something that the Chancellor Philip Hammond uh, poo-pooed quite quickly. Other people felt that um, we should be strong uh, and stand up to bullies. And so there was not a united front as to how to deal with him. So one of the things I would advise is that if Donald Trump is coming down the track once again, be a little bit more prepared. Do you think Theresa May was daunted by the prospect? She's never someone that gave very much away in public, at least. It's a daunting prospect. And the problem is early on, is that the, you know there are not things that you can rely on. You can normally rely on certain leaders to be polite, uh, to be uh, engaging, to want to do business with you, and to, if nothing else, believe in the special relationship that we've spent decades beforehand uh, building. Trump doesn't care about anyone else but Trump. One of the things a British Prime Minister will have to be ready for if Trump does return as president his meetings and phone calls unlike any they will ever have experienced. Here's Kim Darrock on that first May-Trump summit in the White House. It was uh, an uncharacteristic first meeting because he wasn't really sticking to an agenda. Leaders tend to have teams of officials agree the agenda beforehand and you go through it point by point and compare views and have a discussion where you don't completely agree on things and so on. But... um, if Trump had a brief in front of him, he certainly wasn't sticking to it. And it was a very wide-ranging discussion, which left uh, the Prime Minister occasionally looking at her list of briefing folders and thinking, well, there's nothing in here about this subject or this subject. But in the end, you know, it was uh, it was fine. It was actually very friendly. In terms of the tone, probably the best meeting she had with him. He was making a special effort for it to go to go well. Suffice to say that Trump's softly, softly approach did not last. Here's Katie Perrier. There were lots of behind-the-scenes conversations, uh, phone calls where Theresa May didn't get a word in edgeways. And Trump just talks at you, and he talks at you for a long period of time. And I remember being in a room, uh, often we would take these calls in the Cobra room, where you'd leave your mobile phones behind, and you listen to the calls. And all I remember doing is looking around the table, trying to not let my face show my real feelings, true feelings, and just writing notes and making sure that no one in the room could see my chin drop with every sentence that Trump come out. And I'd be sitting there thinking, how dare you speak to my prime minister like this? How dare you? You know, but there's nothing you can do. And, and he'd what, he'd be lecturing her, berating yeah. her? Yeah. Just, but, but he does it to everyone, um, particularly, I should imagine, women. But, you know, it's a one-way broadcast and you just got to sit and listen and find a way through. And Theresa was, you know, never gave up never gave in, just constantly tried to find a gap in the conversation where she would say, yes, but we must talk about this. And I really need your agreement on that. But it's a one-way conversation with Trump. He doesn't listen. He doesn't care. He's just interested in Donald Trump. And, you know, you're his audience for half an hour. And that's how he views you. And it's not just the erratic conversations and the hectoring tone. Donald Trump, it is pretty uncontroversial to say, does not always tell the truth. Here's his former director of comms, Anthony Scaramucci, talking to this podcast back in season three for an episode we did about lying in politics. Scaramucci, you may recall, 
lasted only 11 days in the job. The guy was like a flat out congenital liar to the point where like you couldn't even, you didn't even know what the hell he was saying. If, if, he, if he told you that you were a chick, you would be like, oh, okay, maybe I am. I mean, the guy was ridiculous. There was a situation in the White House where we gave him some numbers to recite in the Rose Garden. And this happened on a Wednesday. And the reason I know it was a Wednesday, Jack, because I was only there for one Wednesday. Okay, that's how I know it was a Wednesday. So we give him the numbers. He's in the Rose Garden. I think the number was like 86%. And so he said 90. It, it walks back in. I look at him. I said, why did you say 90 when the actual number is 86? Oh, 90 sounds better. 90 sounds better. But that was his whole MO. Now, it's hard to imagine any British prime minister enjoying dealing with this. But what about one who's only a few weeks into the job? Because the chances are the next general election here in the UK will be held right around the same time as the American one. And that therefore, if the polls are right, a newly elected Prime Minister Keir Starmer will have entered Downing Street for the first time shortly before Inauguration Day in Washington. How would he respond to that sort of hectoring, bullying behaviour? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, not particularly well, I suspect. Not particularly well. This is Chris Ward, now of Hanbury Strategy, but formerly Keir Starmer's Deputy Chief of Staff. He's done tough negotiations and tough stuff in the past, right? He's been working all night for five years. He's been through some pretty tough times in the Brexit as well. So I don't think he'll have any truck with that. That is not the right way to engage Starmer, from my experience, trust me. Uh, you can... You can lose your temper or have an argument with him once, but you can't really do it more than once, trust me. My Politico colleague, Anne McElvoy, asked Keir Starmer what he would make of an incoming President Trump in an interview on her Power Play podcast back in September. At the third time of asking, the Labour leader eventually admitted that he does hope Trump will lose. Obviously, you know, we are um, progressives and President Biden and his team uh, talk to my team, as you'd expect. We talk to other people in and around the administration. So it's clear what my desired outcome would be. Chris Ward was at Starmer's side back in 2016 when the results of Trump's first election victory came in. At the time, Starmer was shadow Brexit secretary. And Ward says his concern was clear to see. He was a combination of bemused, upset, confused about how it happened and sort of worrying about where it took everyone. So I could imagine him being that, but, you know, 10 times worse if he's Prime Minister or in the middle of a campaign this time. I think he was the most worried I'd seen him, actually. What would have worried him so much about seeing Donald Trump win the first time? I think there's two big reasons why it worries him and why it would worry him all this time. First, just how different they are as people. Starmer believes in cooperation, human rights, Britain and America being more engaged in the world. You know, uh, also, you know, on a personal level, you know, Lisa Landy referred to him as Mr. Rules once. And I don't think Trump's ever been called that. Those two people, personality-wise and career-wise, is like absolute chalk and cheese. I think also, secondly, people don't really get this with Keir that, because he's background with the EU, etc. but the UK's relationship to the US is really important to Keir, right? He's at heart an Atlanticist. He really believes that the UK needs to be close to America, should be close to America, has shared values. And he sees the world increasingly as divided into, you know, democracies against authoritarians. And he would really worry about where Trump falls on that spectrum. And he would really worry about what it leads to America disengaging from the world, whether that's on all the things Starmer cares about, right? Climate change, human rights. He just sees Trump as really difficult to that. 
how would you be advising him to approach it? I mean, just imagine a scenario where Keir Starmer wins a general election and literally a few weeks later, Donald Trump returns to the White House in January 2025. What, how would you be saying he should approach that? The UK can't be totally divorced from America and he will need to find a way through it. You know, Starmer's able to find friendships that people he doesn't really get on with, right? He got on with Corbyn for four years. Uh, and found common ground to work through. You will find a way of of building a relationship that works. But I think what it will mean is that he'll think about how to recalibrate foreign policy in that four years or so. He'll think he can't rely on America in the way that he does now. And I think that will drag him to look into other countries and look at other ways of delivering the foreign policy Starmer believes in, which is to say collaborationist, cooperation, you know, that kind of stuff. In Kim Darrick's view... It's this prospect of America further retrenching from the Western security structures which should be foremost in the minds of Prime Minister Sunak or Prime Minister Starmer. You have to take this seriously. This is a real possibility. You have to think about what it means. I think that a second-term Trump, with more idea about how to get what he wants done, uh, we're on back of those four years of, of sort of pretty mixed experience, might well at least try to get American you know, physical commitment to NATO taken right down to the minimum, but he might actually try to take America out of NATO. I think he would certainly want to stop US military aid to Ukraine, and the Europeans can't backfill for that with over capacity. So that is going to cripple the Ukrainian war effort. And at best, I think, leads to a sort of shabby deal in which Ukrainian territory is surrendered to Russia. At worst, it gives Russia the opportunity actually to achieve their original, original war objectives and overthrow the government in uh, in Kyiv. He's threatening a general tariff on all imports to the US, which would be a big blow for a huge amount of European exports to the United States. And I would say, don't think that there is some special sympathy or belief that somehow we, despite Brexit, are a different place from the rest of Europe and we would be sort of sheltered from all of this. Trump isn't really a believer in any sort of special relationship. So be worried about it. Start to think about how you would mitigate some of the things that he would try to do, what you would do about NATO, how you might try to persuade him to stay in. And I think if you got everyone up to 2%, that might make a difference because I think we're still great majority of countries in NATO are nowhere near 2% of GDP on defence expenditure. Think about how we can dissuade him from his trade measures. Think about what arguments we would use to persuade him to keep military aid to Ukraine going. But beyond all that, I mean, we'd be entering a very volatile uh, period, with lots of known unknowns there. Really quite, quite worrying. And it's hard to imagine, finally, that Whitehall could possibly be prepared for something like that. Though this sort of apocalyptic picture you've just painted, there's no preparation a prime minister can do, really, is there? But they must be able to see it coming. Back in 2016, the opinion polls all said Hillary Clinton would win. Now you've got Trump four points ahead in the swing states and looking as if every new indictment actually strengthens him rather than weakening him. So there is no excuse for not being prompted to think about the consequences and think about what you would do. But that means in Whitehall they should be wargaming a world beyond NATO right now. Well, I still think that a lot of Republicans would want America to stay in NATO. So I think you would think first about the arguments you would make and the things you would do to persuade him to stay in. As I say, 
everyone getting to 2% uh, within a very short time period would be a good start. And on the other stuff, I mean, Ukraine, just think about how to make the argument for, for this to continue. But you're right. You also need to think about, but what if? And I'd be interested to see what they thought, because the world is already in some turmoil with Ukraine and Gaza and the rise of China, everything else going on. And thinking about a world like that, all that going on, plus an America that is detaching itself from Europe and from the West, that's quite a challenging set of assumptions for anyone to write a good paper about. It is all too clear now that the next US election is going to be a close-run thing which means that a second Trump presidency is no longer a far-fetched idea. And Westminster needs to take note. The occupants of the White House can have an enormous impact on whoever is running the country over here. And if you're not careful, can blow up your premiership on a regular basis. Just ask Theresa May or Tony Blair. It's worth remembering, however, that Joe Biden's Democrats have repeatedly outperformed electoral expectations since he came to power, and also that his Democrat predecessors, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, were both struggling in the polls before ultimately winning their re-election bids. And if a week is a long time in politics, then a year is positively an eternity. There are so many hurdles standing in the way of a second Trump presidency. Not least the fact he's facing multiple lawsuits, one of which might land him in jail. And that, surely, would be the end of that. Right, Eugene? But nothing stops him from running for the White House from prison. There's nothing that says you can't do that in the Constitution. It doesn't say our president can't be a felon. It doesn't say our president can't run the White House from prison. Like, there's nothing that says that he can't. Do that. The experts I've talked to say there's nothing that would stop that. And so it's possible that he, you know, gets arrested, that some one of these many cases that are going on catch him up. And, you know, even then, it won't matter the best chance that the folks that don't want Donald Trump to be president is that Joe Biden is able to defeat him in 2024. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free and do also have a listen through our back catalogue, including that episode I made back in Season 1 on British Prime Minister's efforts to charm US presidents down the years. The bit on Winston Churchill drinking cocktails in the White House is worth it alone. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, who has a sore head today because on Wednesday night he won a gold medal for Best News and Current Affairs Producer at the Audio Production Awards. Well done, James. Uh, And before we go, I have Aggie with me. Aggie, you did not win a gold medal at the Audio Production Awards on Wednesday (laughs) night. I'm uh, I'm award-losing. Award-losing Aggie Chambre. Well, it's lovely to have you here anyway. Um, Aggie, how did you like the podcast? I loved the podcast. It was great. I mean, slightly... uh you know, terrifying, lots to look forward to, but but an interesting lesson. I, I feel there will be plenty of news to report in 2025 if Donald Trump is the president, uh, if nothing else. But uh, yeah, I wasn't totally convinced that Westminster is quite ready for this uh, this eventuality. No, but that, that was what was quite interesting, because I don't think I had fully appreciated basically how likely it is that he will be the next president. 
Uh, well, we can only wait and see. T- tell us what's uh, tell us what's coming up next week. Okay, so next week, do you remember a few weeks ago I made this podcast where I had a focus group of ex-civil servants? And after I made that podcast, I had a few people in the Labour Party getting in touch with me and asking what was going on with the civil service, what I'd learned from speaking to them. And I worked out one of the reasons they were so interested in this is because they believe that they might be about to start working with the civil service very closely if they win the next election. Um, And so they are about to begin these things called access talks. And so I'm making a whole episode on how uh, opposition parties prepare for government. How opposition parties prepare for government. Well, we are very much at that point in the election cycle now. And of course, there's speculation that the election might even come as soon as May. So Labour had better get on with their preparation, hadn't they? Yes. (laughs) Who can we expect to hear from? Uh, So we will be hearing from an ex-permanent secretary, uh, Gus O'Donnell, uh, Nick Bowles, and lots of people who are kind of around in the 2010 era who did all of these kind of access talks. How to get ready for government. All right, um, listen to that next week. Uh, Thanks very much for being with us this week, and uh, I'll see you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.